You're listening to How Did I Get Here? A deep dive into our journey to find the dream job. I'm your host, Jason Fish, and today I'm joined by Lorraine Martin, President and CEO of National Safety Council. Welcome, Lorraine. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, very excited to have you on for an episode of the podcast. Um, so to get started, you graduated college with an undergraduate degree in computational mathematics and a master's in computer science. What were your career aspirations at the time? Yeah, so thank you for asking. I joined um, into my college careers uh, with a scholarship in the U.S. Air Force. So when um, at that time uh, you're given a scholarship, it isn't a certain career field. And for me, they offered me a math scholarship. So as I went to DePaul University, they had a, a, a kind of new uh, degree program called computational mathematics, which was both computer science and mathematics. And since I had to major in math, um, this seemed like a really uh, fun fun way to get started. And I didn't know too much about computers, but um, I was interested. I always loved math and science. I loved biology when I was in uh, high school and junior high. So I knew that the sciences were going to be something that I would gravitate to. And uh, adding the computational part to the mathematics seemed like it made sense. And then from there, as you said, I did get a computer science degree at the master's level as well. But at the time, um, I didn't have a lot of folks in my family that were in the military. This was a scholarship program that was offered through my high school, and it gave me an opportunity to have my high school or my college uh, undergraduate paid for and room and board. So that was pretty, pretty exciting. And I had been in drum and bugle corps, if any of your listeners know what that is. That's something that um, a lot of high school folks are in where you do uh, marching competitions. So I knew I loved that side of the discipline and teamwork and and having groups of people together do amazing things. And now, while, while the military is so much more than that, um, it certainly uh, parked, sparked, sparked my interest. Um, and as at the time, um, after you get a scholarship, you have to go into the Air Force afterwards and you owe a certain number of years of commitment. And that's what I did and um, got a chance to really apply my degree first, you know, first day one. Um, in the military, running research and development programs uh, in the computer science field. So my aspirations were a little bit uncertain because it wasn't necessarily a military career I was seeking. um, But knowing that I had that uh, responsibility on the other side, I took it with all of its gusto and uh, got a chance to be in some really important leadership positions in the the Air Force uh, as a junior officer. Absolutely. And uh, I'd like to thank you for your service, of course, and and ask what motivated you to join the Air Force? Was it um, just for that scholarship or was there something else that I guess kind of piqued your interest in the Air Force? You know, I, I love to serve and I've always had that as kind of a part of what motivates me is to give back and to help others achieve things um, and came from a very large family in uh, a combined family that ended up having 12 different siblings. So uh, there was always a lot to give back and to, and to be of. And the Air Force is part of that too. It's a family. It's a place where you're all coming together to serve a bigger cause uh, for your nation, for the world, to keep people safe. Um, and so I gravitated to uh, that world. Um, I did join initially uh, because I had the scholarship, um, but it was an amazing way to start my career, to give back, uh, to, in some sense, uh, really chart my whole pro- pro- professional career path uh, following from that because I stayed in aerospace and defense um, for 35 years. So 
a really great spot. Uh, when you're in the military as an officer, you're leading day one, whether it's projects or other uh, other human beings. Um, that leadership skill set that I got so early in the Air Force was really uh, just a great way to start my career and something that has uh, served me well for um, now hmm, almost 40 years. For sure. And w- what were some of the jobs or projects that you worked on um, during your time in the Air Force? Yeah, so most of those were software related. We were just starting to understand that systems would have software inside them. Um, so this was back in the in the early 80s. So looking at how do you build software systems? How do you how do you schedule them? How do you put resources against them? And then very specifically, two kind of aspects of that. One was computer security, starting to understand how we were going to put classified information and have it be protected within computers and what some of those standards needed to look like. And then expert systems, as we called them back then, um, but AI and machine learning and some of the very early understandings of, of how we could use software to, to make decisions on behalf of folks that were planning engagements or other kinds of things for the Air Force. So really exciting, all, all really software-related um, research projects. Hmm, very cool. And following your time in the Air Force, you spent, like you said, 30 years climbing the corporate ladder at Lockheed Martin and living all over the country. Um, what were some notable jobs and projects um, during your time there at Lockheed Martin? Yeah, I, you know, I started at Lockheed Martin working on software programs uh, coming out of the Air Force and and looking at some of the, the new systems, I got a chance to work on some really early on some fighter aircraft and the software computer systems, specifically how to handle classified information in aircraft um, early on. Although I was never a pilot and really uh, for quite a long time didn't really work on airplanes um, uh, after that, I, I focused on more traditional software, software systems, software intensive systems. Got a chance to work on a really cool radar at one point that used radio waves literally to track objects so that was pretty cool um and along the way also worked on um a flight simulator so that's actually how i got a little bit closer to aircraft towards the the latter part of my career at lockheed martin but i worked on um the simulators that help pilots understand how to fly an airplane first and foremost but um how to go through emergency conditions how to go through lightning how to go if your engine shuts off so uh, used all of the, the technologies that we had in software and visualization and gaming technology to build the highest end experience for pilots um, so that they literally could fly the plane the first time and feel like they'd already flown it, having, having been through the simulator uh, activity. And then from there, I actually got a chance to get back to airplanes again. So worked on cargo aircraft, production lines, building the C-130, which is an aircraft that's flown around the world for many, many countries for a long time since back in the Vietnam era. Um, and then um, also worked on the C-5, which is a huge, the biggest, largest cargo airplane for the U.S. forces um, and re-engined that and, and, and basically gave it new life. And then from there, got a chance to work on uh, the F-35, which is the current uh, latest and greatest uh, fighter aircraft for not only the U.S. and its services, but uh, many allied nations around the world. So those are just a few that are just amazing products, teams, and um, technologies to support our men and women who put themselves in, tar- in harm's way. And it was just an honor to be uh, supporting some of those. Wow, that's pretty incredible, for sure. And you spent, you know, a significant portion of your career at Lockheed Martin. So what prompted you to leave and make the transition to where you are now? Yeah, so I spent 35 years in the aerospace and defense world, which was just amazing. And 
And as you, as I'm talking to all your listeners and knowing how they're going to chart their career, you, you just never know. Um, you got to take those, those opportunities as they come and, and learn from them and, and move forward. If we, you know, I don't know if I would have ever imagined, you know, that I'd be building aircraft, um, but it was really an amazing thing to be able to be part of. Um, and at the, at the end of 35 years there, I knew I also wanted to serve more. And while I started my career, you know, as an officer in the, in the, in the military services, I also knew I wanted to take the skills and the amazing um, leadership programs that Lockheed Martin had provided me and the experiences of, of leading literally, you know, thousands of employees to help build very complex systems and solve really tough problems and bring that to uh, the nonprofit world and, and, and find a place where I could be giving back kind of as another bookend um, to serve. And uh, I was looking for an opportunity to be in, in a leadership position um, for a nonprofit, hopefully one that was a little complex and had some, you know, fun challenges within it. And that's how I ended up at the National Safety Council, um, now helping with the safety challenges in our workplaces, on our roadways, um, for still serving the men and women of the, of the military, because they're all members of the National Safety Council, each of the services. So getting a chance to give back in a, in a new and different way, which, um, you know, I think you always need to, you, you need to challenge yourself um, in each opportunity that you take. And I'll, I'll often talk to folks, if you take a new job and you're not drowning, you didn't take the right job because you got to learn. And the nonprofit world is not a world I knew anything about. Um, and uh, coming to that with a little bit of experience, certainly um, in safety, for sure, because uh, Lockheed Martin and, and all of those programs that I worked on had very high safety cultures. Uh, but now I get to, you know, learn new things every day and figure out how to how to serve and, and hopefully a, a meaningful and next next phase of the journey. Absolutely. And for the listeners not familiar with the National Safety Council, would you be able to touch on a little bit more what um, you guys do day to day and what type of areas you're focused on? Yeah, thank you for that. So the National Safety Council has been around for about 107 years. It was formed um, with some initiative by both industry and Congress um, at the time when there were some horrific um, workplace fatalities, you know, big buildings in New York, garment factories with no fire detection and doors were locked and people perished. And the, the you know, sort of the origin story for the, for the council is that you shouldn't have to put your life at risk to go to work, to get a salary, to support your, your livelihood, to have joy in your life. Um, you shouldn't have to risk your life or limp. And we're an organization that looks at how do we make sure that, that people can live their fullest lives and preventable deaths, preventable injuries are things that we can eliminate and we need to do so. So we have over 16,000 members, as I mentioned, the, the military services are members and, and we serve them in a variety of ways. Um, reaching over 7 million employees around the country um, and helping them bring their safety protocols to their, to their families, to their communities, um, and to the roadways as they traverse um, and uh, serve them with safety protocols, safety procedures, safety tools, and um, ways to make sure that they're doing their work safely. Clearly right now, um, you know, we don't have a lot of people driving, not as many as we typically do in the U.S. because of all of the, the shelter in place and, and the disruption we've had because of the COVID-19 situation. Um, but I will tell you, driving is one of the um, most preventable deaths we have in our nation right now. And unfortunately, we're seeing with a significant number of fewer people driving, fewer miles driven, a significant higher rate in fatalities. So we have something going on 
now, which we're paying a lot of attention to. Um, and I will tell you the other, and you might not think of this as a preventable death, but it definitely is. The number one uh, preventable death in our U.S. right now is opioid overdoses, unintended uh, fatalities due to folks having substance uh, misuse uh, challenges in their life. And we've been uh, focusing in the last couple of years of trying to help address that over 40,000 um, individuals losing their lives annually uh, from a, an accidental overdose. Um, so we follow the data. We look at what's what's causing folks to have their life uh, uh, taken from them and what can we do to give them um, techniques, tools, training, procedures, whatever it might be, safer roads, safer cars, uh, so that they can live their full life. So uh, we get a chance to, to do a lot of things. I got a chance last week to be on Capitol Hill virtually, they they had a hearing on worker safety and in the time of COVID right now, making sure that we've got all the right procedures and, and guidelines for folks to make sure if, if you're at a traditional work environment that you're safe um, and making sure that we do that all with the right care and uh, support. Absolutely. You uh, led me right into my next question, which is, how is the National Safety Council helping ensure companies are reopening safely, uh, I guess, when the time comes amid the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, great. And that is taking a lot of my attention and my teams right now for obvious reasons. So uh, we surveyed our members very early on of how many of them still had employees going to traditional work locations and about 72% do. I mean, we've got tons of essential workers doing everything they need to do to keep our, you know, our nation uh, running to keep us safe, and we so appreciate their support. Whether it's the military, health professions, uh, uh, grocery workers, there's also a lot of us, like myself here today, and probably you, Jason, that are working from home. Right? We can absolutely we do what we need by picking up our computer and and doing it um, on our Wi-Fi elsewhere and keeping ourselves and our families safe. Um, but getting our econo- economy running and the recovery that we're all looking for requires us to make sure that we are reopening those offices that we have fleed from um, safely and doing that well and making sure as we go back to traditional work environments, we do that in the right kind of phasing with the right kind of protocols um, and do it when we need to do it. Because for a lot of us, we've found a way, perhaps not optimal, but we found a way to keep um, our productivity and, and things running from home. And we need to make sure that we're taking the right the right kind of uh, decision-making models as we as we move forward. We got together um, Fortune 500 companies, health professionals, uh, legal professionals, um, um, folks from the uh, government agencies to help us really look at all the best practices that people have been using to navigate right now. And we brought them all together. We've created playbooks to uh, provide to anyone for free, small and mid-sized companies, especially who don't have big safety sort of teams to help and advise them. And, and we've put that all together under something called SAFER, Safe Actions for Employee Returns. And it's free out on our website, nsc.org slash SAFER, um, so, that, so that we can provide uh, the best practices from all of the uh, human health uh, safety recommendations and from corporate recommendations uh, so everybody can do this well. Uh, a lot of Fortune 500 companies have businesses and operations worldwide, so they kind of have had to look at some of these practices and benchmark themselves, you know, before the U.S. And they literally just said, Lorraine, here's my playbook. You can have it. You know, take my logo off of it, figure out how to help other folks who are in the same kind of industry that I'm in, uh, use these practices um, to their best, best, best benefit so that we can all do this as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And it's just been amazing 
for the, for the council to be sort of a, a catalyst and a place where we can all come together to, to share those best practices. So uh, we're in the right place at the right time. This is why we exist uh, to help workers be safe. And our economy is going to depend on us keeping our workers safe and making sure that they return to traditional workplaces in a safe manner. Absolutely. And it's it's pretty incredible that I'm sure many Americans may not be familiar with your company, but I'm sure most Americans have been affected um, over the work that your company has done over the last 107 years. So it's pretty um, pretty amazing position to be in. Thank you. And, and the folks that work there and have, you know, for those hundred years, they're there because they have a passion of keeping, keeping people safe. That's what we come to work with every day. Um, and we do, we want everyone to live their fullest life, whatever that's supposed to be on this planet. So um, when we get to do that and, and help folks, um, you know, uh, be safe and, and uh, do the things that bring them joy, you know, it makes it all worth it. What other initiatives within your organization are you most excited about? You know, the Safer Project definitely has, has overtaken us recently, and it, as it should. Sure. Um, but we also have been helping with uh, toolkits for workers um, and their workplaces on opioids and awareness regarding uh, addiction. And uh, we have a whole toolkit that can be used uh, to help each employer make sure that they've got their supervisors trained, that they've got the right HR policies, uh, and they've got the right recovery programs to help folks get past that issue of stigma and get into the resources that they need. So that's a really um, important one that, uh, that we, we've invested a lot of time and resources in. We also put together a, um, a national plan for all of the presidential uh, candidates on what they should be doing for opioids in our country and, and helping us to get to the right place there and provided it to all the candidates. Thankfully, um, um, one that made it through, Biden, has used some of it. So that's great. We also provided it, of course, to the the current administration. So it's been great to, to be a, a source of, of some of the guidance there to help us. Uh, we also help companies with their standard safety risks. And that's a really important thing for us to realize right now that as people do come back to work or their traditional work environment, or even the folks that are out there now doing construction, and I can look out my window and I see some folks putting on a new roof across the way, making sure that you're doing the safe protocols that we all know we've built over the last hundred years especially when your mind is elsewhere and you're worried about, you know, your own safety at home or, or whether or not, you know, you know, you can get groceries safely later today or whether or not some of your family members' jobs are at risk. So making sure that we're doubling down on the standard safety practices in a workplace, especially when we're so stressed out and potentially preoccupied is also something that we're helping with people with right now, because it's going to be really, really important to help us um, you know, get to the other side of this. What would you say is the most challenging part about leading such a large company with so many members, as well as working with so many companies and the, the government as well? Yeah, I think um, you, for any company, when you, when you have a lot of stakeholders, which is kind of what you just outlined, you need to know where your center is, what, what your priorities are, uh, we just recently created our, our five-year strategy for the organization. Um, many organizations use sort of strategic planning to help them have those guideposts um, that not only help you know what's in and what's out so you don't get too distracted, but also to communicate to everyone that you serve, these are the things that are really important to us and where we're going to be putting our resources and where we would like to partner with you um, if you have something that is that is synergistic. So we're looking at three main, main uh, sort of pillars, uh, 
workplace safety, roadway safety, and then this issue of impairment, which covers for us not only the issue of um, uh, substance misuse, but things having to do with fatigue and um, just mental health in the workplace. Anything that causes the human being who's putting themselves in front of a, a risky thing to ensure that they are you know, competent, well, well rested, well able to do the job safely uh, is something that we're looking at under this sort of broad umbrella of impairment. So we really focus on ensuring that everything we do is focused in that direction. And then it's making sure you've hired the right team, that they are able to do their best with the resources that they need, um, and that they uh, know how to partner with that greater community that you just defined so that we can have more impact than just ourselves alone. These problems are pretty big and they're, they're meaty. And like you said, with 16,000 members and and government organizations in the safety world, both for workplace and for roadway, you've got to have a lot of partnerships, and you got to know um, who you know who you can depend on one, and and who has common mission uh, for your organization and for your uh, initiatives, such that you can and can come together and make more happen than you would would individually. So um, I think those are some of the, the things that are really important. When you have a lot of players, you got to communicate a lot. You got to have some clarity around that. And you got to make sure you're communicating in every vehicle that you can that you can find. Absolutely, I just have two final questions for you. The first being, what do you wish you had done differently in your business journey thus far? You know, wow, um, <laughs> I've loved every minute of it, and I shared that with my colleagues at Lockheed Martin as I was uh, moving on to my next journey and. And I love what I do now. Hopefully you can hear some of that passion as I, as I talk about these, this amazing work and the things I've gotten to do. I think one of the things I would have done, and, and um, I'm not sure I've ever shared this, I did a lot of international travel uh, towards the you know, last 10 years or so of my Lockheed Martin career. And you know, you're very busy. You get into, you go, go where you're going to go. You have your meetings. You're racing to something else. I might have stopped and, and smelled the roses or, or visited more of some of those amazing sites I got a chance to go to. And it, it, you know, it's, it's hard to ask yourself to do that. But uh, I think along that journey, I, I might have stopped and paused a bit and got a chance to just really not only enjoy the people um, around this world that were partnering with us and their, and their armed services, um, but also to, to get a chance to see their country. I got to do some of that and it was absolutely amazing. But I think I would have done more. And I'm just going to have to find a time to go back. As soon as we can move about this world, I'm going to have to go back to some of those places and uh, and acknowledge the amazing partners we have around the world. Hmm. Yeah, I hope I hope that time comes pretty soon. I know a lot of people are getting a little antsy in their house. Um, my final question is, what has been the biggest turning point in your life and how did that alter your path? Ooh. Well, I, you know, the Air Force scholarship, a lot of times folks will ask me, you know, how did you get into the Air Force? And I just got to be honest and say it was a scholarship sitting on the guidance counselor. I don't even know if we have guidance counselors in high schools anymore, but it was one of the scholarships on the guidance counselor's desk that, uh, you know, that, that, that she gave to me. And I filled out several. At the time, I was really looking for some financial support to go to, to, go to college. Um, and this, this is one that was a, you know, significant financial uh, assistance and I filled it out, went through the process and got it. And I will tell you that if I think about where I am today, that was a, a pretty big game changer. I don't know. I guess turning point is the term you used. I, 
I think it was a pretty big turning point um, that that set set me on this path. I think the the other one um, that made a big difference in my career and my life was was being open to um, relocating. And I know for a lot of folks that that's hard to do. They've got family members. They've got infrastructure in the in the location they're in. Maybe today with us all realizing that we can work from places we never expected to work, dining room tables, you know, wherever we are today, um, there'll be a little bit more flexibility of where work gets done. But for my career, I had to move quite a bit, like every three years, literally. And I was able to do that. But if I hadn't, um, I would have had such a, a, a more contained set of opportunities. Uh, I would have never been, you know, the general manager of the F-35 program if I hadn't had all of the experiences um, that I had throughout my career. And I had to go to different plants and different, different business models, different um, towns, different cultures, even within our U.S., to get the experience and to get the uh, breadth and depth that would have enabled me to even be considered to, to run, you know, the, the most advanced fighter aircraft in history. But I had to move a lot. And that those are turning points that were incremental turning points, but so, so important to get that, that, that breadth of experience. I just have one, I guess, final smaller question. Where, where has been the, your favorite place that you've ever lived? Well, they're all in the U S and I, I would hate to um, disparage any of them. I will tell you Colorado Springs. I got to be there, I think for almost four years or three and a half, maybe. Um, it's just so beautifully breathtaking. I mean, the mountain, uh, Pikes Peak is a personality in that town um, that's sure. no other. So I think just, just from, I don't know if it was my favorite. I, I've loved all of them today. I'm sitting here on the coast of Maine. Um, there's just such incredible people across our country and, and organizations to be part of. Uh, but I will say that Color Springs has its own little character all, all in of its own. And I, I, I enjoyed living there and I've, I've always taken that with me. So I don't know if it was the favorite. So if anybody knows me and they're now saying, why didn't you pick my location? I'm sorry. <laughs> but that one, that one truly, it had a heartbeat that you could feel. Thanks for listening to another episode of How Did I Get Here? If you want to learn more about Lorraine and what she's up to now, check out her LinkedIn profile linked in the description of this podcast. Until next time.